As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen, and welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and the mind and trying to live well in general. Today's episode is an interview with Coach Doc Esslinger. Coach Doc is the head basketball coach for the California Institute of Technology, which is called, most people call it Caltech for short. And Caltech is a super high academic Division III school. They have lower acceptance rates than MIT. So all of his players are super high academic players. And I interviewed the assistant coach, Steve Ledesma, in a previous podcast. I think that was episode 10. And we talked a little bit about that dynamic of players who have such bright futures in academics and they love the game and how that makes for a unique dynamic on the court. Coach Doc was actually the assistant coach, the lead assistant, and the associate head men's basketball coach at MIT before he took the head job at Caltech. And this conversation was recorded quite a while ago. Let's see, the years starting to blend together with COVID. So I guess it was the beginning of 2021 that we recorded this, and that was after his 2020-2021 season or their 2020-2021 season was canceled due to COVID. And so the conversation was about the previous season, which was the 2019-2020 season, which took place right before the pandemic hit. And that was a special season. We ta- I talked about it with Steve on the podcast. They won their last three games, and their final game was the result of a very dramatic buzzer beater. So that's what we're referencing. We're referencing the... <laughs> 2019-2020 season. And as I record this, Caltech is now in their next season and they're doing another solid job. Both Coach Doc and Coach Ledesma are helping lead Caltech to another solid season and they will be in the playoffs coming up here soon. So it was a pleasure speaking to Coach Doc. Uh, we talk about his own basketball journey from being a player into being a coach and then some of the our shared interests in Sports psychology, Coach Doc has a cool website, which I link to in the show notes, where he writes blog posts about basketball and psychology and his expertise there. We talk about how Coach Doc helped turn around the Caltech program. They were suffering from the longest losing streak in college basketball history, I think. They didn't win a home game from 1985 until the mid-2000s, which I think was Coach Doc's third season when they finally won a home game. Quick edit, I meant to say conference game. They didn't win a conference game from the 80s until the mid-2000s. I didn't mean to say home game. And there was a New York Times article on the losing streak and coming out of the losing streak, and now they are a competitive team, which is really cool. We talk about flow states and finding flow in sports, even sports like golf. And Coach Doc also plays music, and he has some cool observations about the similarities between jamming with a band and playing music with others and being on the court with teammates, and we dive into other topics as well. So I really enjoyed the conversation, and here is my interview with Coach Doc Esslinger. 
I'm here with Coach Doc Esslinger. Doc, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, Billy, thank you for inviting me. So I think I want to frame this conversation by starting with your basketball journey, how you got into coaching, and talk through kind of the progression there that you went through, because it's really interesting, and then focus on how you blend your expertise in psychology into your coaching style. So first, where did you grow up and how did you initially get into basketball? Sure. Well, I spent a good portion of my childhood in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, which is a suburb of Tulsa. So we were in Oklahoma for nine years. Before that, I, I was born in Atlanta, actually, in Georgia, and, and uh, was living there until I was about five. Mm-hmm. So from kindergarten up through eighth grade, I was in Oklahoma. And then we moved from Oklahoma to Albany, New York. So I spent high school in New York. But when you talk about childhood, it's uh, images of Oklahoma that are in my mind. Okay. And did you play multiple sports as a kid? Yeah, I did. So I played I played some organized soccer and, and was really into Little League Baseball for a few years. Played on a very competitive Little League team in Oklahoma. And, uh, and then around the same time, fourth grade, got started with organized basketball as well. So... Uh, had experience in those sports plus I took tennis lessons and Mm -hmm. then just growing up in in our neighborhood it was a really intimate kind of community oriented neighborhood where you just knew everybody there and there were so many kids running around all the time so we were always riding bikes and there was a nature park right by our house and exploring woods and and just playing pickup football, pickup soccer, pickup hoops, pickup badminton, whatever, tetherball, you know, whatever we could do. And so it was, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a fun childhood when you talk about athletics exposure. Yeah, that's great. I actually was lucky to be I feel like it's kind of a lost art now and with kids growing up about that kind of like knock on someone's door and go play wiffle ball in the park. I had a similar experience in my neighborhood. Unfortunately, I think a lot of kids don't have that anymore. So that's, um, that's really great. So when did, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, having, having the kids that we have, I mean, my own kids, mm-hmm. I, I often think about that and the comparison and how different it is for them mm. growing up now. Uh, you know, and that, that just kind of opportunity to just go outside and knock on people's doors and, and, uh, and run around. Yeah, for sure. So when did basketball, when did you know basketball was going to be your path? Well, I don't know if I ever knew it was a path. I just knew that I loved it. Mm -hmm. And out of all the sports that I played when I was younger, basketball was the, the one that for some reason just, uh, was in my soul all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I'm sure uh, in the moment, I mean, when we were playing baseball, I wasn't thinking about basketball, but I just could, I could never wait for basketball season to start. And I loved, loved my youth coach and I loved the team that I was on and 
had the hoop in the backyard and just was out there as much as possible. So growing up, I mean, hoops was definitely part of my identity in high school as well and then into college and, and played played in college and then uh, and then used to work summer camps as a basketball coach for, for money in the summers when I was older, mm. you know, and so I, uh, I enjoyed that part of it and staying connected to the game that way. But I, I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure that my career was going to, to be that of a, of a basketball coach. Okay. And how do you, when you think back to your college experience at Clark university, what do you remember about that? Was it a good experience? Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, I loved, I loved attending Clark and as a student and an athlete. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I still keep in touch with, with, uh, with my, my college roommates. In fact, that we were on a, a tech string and mm. even last night, they all six of us were firing away, you know, <laughs> it was one of our, one of, one of our, roommate's uh birthdays yesterday and he was he was actually a teammate of mine too and and uh and so uh that was fun you know to to rehash some memories but clark was a smaller uh, a smaller university and so it allowed me to to play basketball but also allowed me to extend my relationships with other people who didn't play and Mm -hmm. and uh, it was pretty diverse in that way and so I felt like I was able to make a lot of good connections and, and I still stay in touch with a lot of those friends as well. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I had a similar experience actually being at a small university and making a lot of friends, obviously on the team, but outside of the team as well. That's, that's great. Can you tell me about your dissertation, mental imagery ability in high and low performance, uh, collegiate basketball players? Sure. Yeah. It seems like forever ago now. <laughs> that, uh, that that I wrote that. However, I still go back and and read it and look at it and and uh, and try to utilize some of the concepts and and terms and and even recently have looked at how some of that is is very similar in in research now and mm-hmm. and maybe how some of it is different. So uh, the last several months obviously has given me more time uh, being at home a lot of this time to. Uh, dive back into some of the research but uh i mean at clark is where i i really started thinking about psychology majored in psychology a very good school for psychology mm-hmm. and i had a great advisor james McHale, and uh he taught me more about the research sides of things mm-hmm. and and uh and because of him i was able to present some research at a national conference even as an undergrad and he ended up being one of my committee members on my the dissertation committee when I was at Boston University mm. and and so that all kind of came full circle when you talk about the psychological aspects and and as I got into BU I mean I didn't even know about sports psychology when I was at Clark it was it was it was it was one of those things I when I was at this conference in DC that I saw this book on sports psychology and I and this is in the the uh, late nineties. Hmm. And I saw this book. I said, what is this? And I never heard of it. I never didn't know there was an actual field. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, bought the book and read the whole thing. And I said, well, this is what I want to do. 
Mm. Was it a relatively new field at the time? Uh, I know it's become pretty popular these days. Yeah, I'd say in the 90s, there were there were certainly sports psychologists and there were, there were uh, people practicing the art of performance psychology, I guess you could call it, but it wasn't so mainstream where you would hear about it in the media. There certainly weren't full-time consultants and, and sports psychs employed by universities and colleges. And, hmm. and uh, you might hear every once in a while about somebody working with a pro team, but and my advisor at BU, Len Zykowski, was one of them. Mm. But it wasn't something where you could just get a master's degree even and, 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 and then get a full-time job in it. And nowadays you see a lot of people with just, just master's degrees who are working with pro teams. Mm. But, but back yeah. then, I mean, it was, as, as Dr. Zykowski used to say, I mean, it was just in its infancy. Where, and, who did your advisor work with? Well, he was, he was working with a lot of the Boston teams and, cool. and when I was at BU, Rick Pitino was the coach of the Celtics and, uh, Red Auerbach was obviously still there and, and they brought Lennon to be a, uh, a consultant for them. So because I was a basketball guy at the time and, and, uh, and Len knew that we'd, we'd often talk about what he was doing with the Celtics. Mm. And then he also helped me align and, and get some work with the BU teams, basketball teams and Northeastern. And gradually I was, I had this web of, of, uh, contacts and connections all over Boston area and Massachusetts where I was working with some different teams and, and not just basketball teams. Mm. And, and so you asked about the evolution of the dissertation. Well, I was, I was playing a lot of pickup basketball at the time and we had a noon ball game at BU and it was pretty competitive and, and, uh, and there were lots of great leagues around the city. So I was playing a lot of ball still, but I was also playing a lot of golf. (laughs) I had, well, I had taken up golf and since, since graduating from Clark and, that kind of going through that transition, which is tough, you know, when you're a a college athlete and then you just don't have that same yeah. experience. If you're not going to be a pro, then you don't have that same sort of experience anymore. Right. And so you kind of put your energies in other things, but golf is such a mental game that I played a lot to generate ideas mm. in within sports psychology, but, but, uh, playing hoops too. I started thinking about more about anticipation and consciousness versus unconsciousness while you're playing and, and how you're reading and reacting and seeing things before they happen. And one of those days I, I made a, a nice backdoor bounce pass to a teammate who was cutting and it was kind of this perfect synergy in, within a possession, you know, and I went back and I was thinking just about how the brain works and how do how do we know where somebody's going to be and, and can make a pinpoint pass to that player uh, in our minds before it happens and that's sort of the that's sort of where the imagery idea came from. Something stuck with me about what you said that you said you were playing golf kind of as a way to 
generate ideas about the mental side of sports. And I don't play golf, but I've watched some golf and I can see through the player's experience how much pressure and time they have to think and how grueling that must be to stay mentally composed. Have you read Golf in the Kingdom? I actually haven't read that one. Okay. I have a lot, a lot of other golf books though. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I just listened to the, the author on a podcast once and he was fascinating the way he talked about flow states in golf, which mm, mm-hmm. flow states make sense to me in, in basketball where, cause it's so rapid paced and synergistic, but in things like baseball and golf, there's so much time in between action that the way he described it was, was fascinating. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting about flow is, is that you can, you can enter a flow state. I mean, the opportunity is there do, doing any sort of activity. Right. So, it, I mean, even having a conversation like this. Right. And, and yeah, when you think about something, a uh, sport like golf or baseball, like you said, have, have, um, longer time between actual, the, the actual task of, of what you're doing, but still there is a way to, to, to do that. And I know that when I was playing a lot, there were a couple of moments, longer moments where I was in a state of flow. One was in playing at a, a course in Cape Cod, Massachusetts and, and, uh, beautiful course, you know, just where you can see the ocean there and, and uh, it was a nine hole and I was only going to play nine holes, but I was in such a groove that I ended up staying on and playing another, mm. playing another nine that day. And I, I can still remember the, what I was saying to myself and the, the couple of guys that I was, strangers that I was playing with. Mm. And even one of them had said, you're, you're in, he didn't say a flow state, but he said something like that. Like you're in the zone, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just like you're in such a groove that, uh, you should just keep playing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, I want to come back to flow. Um, but first, so when did you decide to pursue coaching? That's a, an interesting question because I don't exactly know. I know that, uh, as I mentioned, I love working the camps all around New York and Massachusetts uh, as as a summer as a summer gig, and so a lot of more college camps and 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 some high schools. And then I also gave some lectures. I mean, at some basketball camps as from a mental side, and so I was I was certainly involved in basketball. But uh, when I was working on my dissertation, I was asked to be the head coach of Boston University Academy, and that's a, a small private prep school affiliated with BU. And so that kind of just happened from meeting the athletic director from BU Academy. He used to play pickup with us at BU and was looking for a boys coach, so I said, uh yeah, I do it because that year of working on dissertation, I was done with my coursework, so I had some more time, mm-hmm. and I figured it was a way to get out in the in the quote unquote field, athletic field, and uh, try to put some of what I've been learning to use. With yeah. a very young team, we didn't. It was a high school team, but we didn't have any juniors or seniors on the team. Maybe maybe one or two juniors, but there were no seniors. 
So a lot of, a lot of freshmen, sophomores. And so that was my first exposure as being a head coach of, of, of a team. I think when I was at BU Academy and, and was a head coach there, I really enjoyed that experience. And it just, it, it worked out, didn't apply for the job officially. But when the MIT head coach called me randomly one night and asked me if I wanted to come talk to him about an assistant position at MIT, that's, that was my exposure in the, into the college game as a coach. And, uh, I, people say you make your own luck, but, and I, I guess I did just by staying in touch with Coach Anderson. He had coached against me when I was at Clark and, uh, remembered me as a player hmm. and, and, uh, literally just randomly called me one night and I wasn't looking for it. Uh, but he was looking for me. <laughs> and, uh, so I ended up being an assistant, the top assistant there for six years, halfway through was promoted to associate head coach. So want to take a quick break from the conversation to thank you for listening to the podcast. Really appreciate you listening and engaging with the work. As always, you can contact me at contact at billyhanson.net. And the best way to keep track with my work is to subscribe to my newsletter, which you can find at billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. My new book has been out for a while now. The book is called Harder Than I Thought, Easier Than I Feared, with the subtitle Sports, Anxiety, and the Power of Meditation. The book is, I think, a perfect resource for a struggling athlete, someone who's going through a difficult time, maybe has lost the joy in sports. I write about my own difficulties as a college athlete, suffering from mental health problems, and how the practice of mindfulness meditation, both off the courts and, in, and through integrating it into my game, helped me recover. And so the book is really about playing sports and growing up and trying to cultivate a good athletic career that supports a good life after sports. So if you're a player or a coach or a parent, or if you know someone who might be interested, you should head to billyhanson.net forward slash book and pick up a copy. You can get one in print or ebook or audiobook format, and I read the audiobook myself. So thank you, as always, for listening to the podcast. And now back to the conversation with Coach Doc Esslinger. So I'm curious what your expectations were like when you took the Caltech job. And I'm going to in the intro to this podcast, I will have described the dynamic that you took over with, I don't know if it was at the time when you took over, but at some point it was the longest losing streak in the country, right? In terms of conference games. Yeah, the losing streak at the time that I took over, I don't know exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. You can do the math on that. But uh, I mean, it was two decades worth more than that. Amazing. Of, of, of losing in conference and and uh, I mean, even today, it's kind of crazy to think about that yeah. and, and how many games that is. Yeah. And, I mean, there's there's context to it, obviously, but still, it's it's uh it's kind of unfathomable. But yeah. I mean, what's neat is when we when we ended the losing streak in 2011 in February in that last game against Occidental. This this year, we're coming up on the 10 year anniversary. And, uh, and so, uh, trying to organize 
kind of a virtual reunion with that team. Oh, cool. Which is, uh, you know, a couple weeks away. But, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the transition was, was exciting and it was nerve wracking and it was unique and it was interesting. And then there's, there's, there's just, there's not another story like that. Mm-hmm. When you sit back and think about what it was all about. So, I mean, you asked about expectations. I think the best, the best advice and expectation that I would, if I was talking to me about the time, would be not to have any expectations. Mm-hmm. And I think that was my mentality back then. And I don't, I don't know if there's any other way you could really do it mm-hmm. without really being in the moment, living the moment day to day and taking just the smallest baby steps possible in, in attempting to, to do something that hadn't been done before. Mm. Yeah. And what has it been like to see the program go from the bottom, the perennial bottom dwellers into this last season, the kind of special season that you had in a winning season in conference and beating some really good teams and that fantastic three-game winning streak that ended with a buzzer beater. Uh, listeners of my podcast will remember I interviewed Steve Ledesma and we talked quite a bit about that. He's the he's your assistant coach currently. Um, so I'm just curious about the kind of mentality shift that must have taken place in your team where you slowly start to believe that you can compete and then it seems like now every time you go into the gym, you feel like you can beat anyone in the conference. So what, what was that transition like for you? And how did you see your players' culture change into one of confidence and feeling like you could win? Well, yeah, first off, the the, uh, the the podcast you did with Coach Ledesma was really good because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but what I enjoyed about that was just hearing someone else's perspective that had been there with us. Mm. And it's neat. And some of the things he talked about were things we talked about before, but it was nice to hear it reiterated and, and what it meant to him personally and his own experience. So that, that was, that was neat for me from another angle. The, I mean, the, just the whole evolution of it is, is neat. And every couple years, starting in 2008, every couple years, we got a little bit better. And I don't mean just, uh, in, competing or winning games but we got better in getting a little closer to the vision as far as what it really takes to be a serious student athlete and especially at a, at, at Caltech where there the, the students are under such such pressure academically hmm. with the rigor and it's a, it's it's a unique and totally different experience from most places in the world mm. when it comes to how how does one balance life as a student athlete you know as a scholar athlete as a true scholar athlete yeah um so just being prepared and knowing how to take care of oneself and 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 how one has to be so darn efficient to even compete and be focused and committed and practice Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's a whole other level. Mm. Very different than what I was, what I went through as an undergrad, for mm. instance. Mm. I mean, we just as a as a as a student athlete, for me and 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 a lot of us were not under the same sort of academic pressures. Uh, just the amount of work that Caltech students have <laughs> is crazy. And I even was talking to. Uh, Brad Gampel, who was our point guard at MIT back then, saying, telling him how much work we had, and and he said he couldn't imagine any place having more work than MIT. So he, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm telling you, it's more. It seems like more. So there's so much that goes into it, and and yeah, what we did this last season. We, we don't do what we did last season if our team back in 2008 didn't do what they did. Mm. And, and so it all builds and it's all connected. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I feel, I love the way you put that. I, you know, my senior year, we got a new coach and we won nine games, didn't make the playoffs, but it was a, a significant building block towards their later success, winning the, their first championship in school history. And I, as a player, felt connected to their championship. I mean, I was a coach at that point, but I, I felt proud that all of the work that we put in, even as we struggled, it seemed to be building in that direction. I felt uh, really connected to their championship later. So I think that's totally spot on what you said. So I want to move into some of the way you're integrating your interest and expertise in psychology and to start off I spoke to Steve this week your your assistant Steve Ledesma and he told me about an analogy that you often use which I thought was fascinating that you sometimes bring up with your players and that's between playing basketball and playing music in a band could you describe that for me how you envision that and how you describe that to the players yeah uh, i mean i i love music and i and i'm a musician and i, I play guitar and i have a number of guitars but I, it's it's one of my hobbies and one of my passions as well hmm. so i just see this strong connection between creating and 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 commanding an instrument but being a part of the instrument in the same way that when one is is, is shooting hoops or, or, or playing ball whether it's working out alone you know I mean if I'm if I'm just kind of messed around on the guitar and 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 and, and playing and and uh, creating that way it's the same as when I'm out creating a drill or or getting reps you know, shooting a hundred threes or whatever it is with, mm -hmm. with, with different sorts of ball handling moves, whatever, you know, and then you can do it as a solo artist and then you can do it with other people. And, and so jamming with, whether it's in a band or just kind of, you know, a couple buddies come over and you, you just start playing music and you're, you're reading one another and you're, you're listening to what they're doing at the same time as you're creating movements yourself and there's action and interaction 
So there's my own, there's my solo action that's connected to what the other musicians are doing as well. And it might be three guitarists, it might be a drummer and two guitarists, it might be, you know, whatever sort of instrument you have. And so being able to adapt and be flexible and then allowing someone else to have a voice while they're playing, maybe you're keeping the rhythm while they're, they're, they're going off on a cool melodic solo. Mm-hmm. And then, and then somehow without talking, you know how to transition back to, back to the pack. And that's what being on a, a competitive sports team is like as well. And a lot of times when you're playing basketball, you're, you're playing with four other players and you're not verbally talking. And coaches always talk about verbal communication, right? Especially defensively. And you can do it offensively as well. But most of the time during a game, you're not talking. I mean, it's silent as far as what's coming out of people's mouths, right? And so we're, we're, we're reacting and responding to time and space and, and body language and facial expressions and, and arm movement and, and all these other, all these other things that, Mm -hmm. uh, that our minds have learned to pick up as situational cues and, and emotional responses and, and nonverbal language. And it's the same thing when, when I'm playing music with others. Yeah, I love that analogy. That's that's really beautiful. Do you have any things specifically that you do with your team to try to initiate that synergy, or do you just kind of explain it to them and let it unfold? What is your method in terms of trying to generate that kind of nonverbal communication and synergy within your team? I think we 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 do it at different levels and we do it in different ways with different platforms and knowing that you start talking about individual differences as as far as how humans brains are and how they've they've each each player has evolved differently i mean from a different environment a different household different everything right and 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 so the more the more I study all of this, and we all, we've, we've known this, and I've known this as someone in psychology, individual differences. That's what, that's what you learn and your professors talk about. But there's so much more to know. And so when you really start to value that, you, you start to think about, okay, how does this person acquire a skill? What is the best way for him to learn? And so knowing that from that, that sort of perspective that using a framework that's versatile, Mm. different platforms are important. So, I mean, learning through video, learning through imagery, learning through story and, and talking and communicating that way, learning through other teammates, maybe you can model behavior from juniors and seniors who have been through that. So to answer your question, I would like to be able to do all of it. And now you can always get better at everything. So I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. And I'd like to think that that we employ it 
But I know that's something we can do better as well. But when we talk about, like, we will we'll practice nonverbal communication. We'll, we'll practice what does it look like when there's a timeout. I mean, timeouts can be very chaotic. And so if you've gone through 30 practices and then have your first game and haven't practiced where people should go during a timeout, <laughs> then you spend half the timeout wasting time trying to trying to get people to huddle together and figure out how to get the water to people who need it without spilling it on the court and yeah. and and people sitting in random seats and then one player who wasn't in the game who just doesn't stand up and move out of the way for the five that are on the floor <laughs> that you have to address something that just happened so we've practiced that before We've practiced our, how do we look when we come out for a warm-up? And what are we actually doing? And what are we trying to accomplish during a warm-up? And how long do we need to do it for? I mean, what's the ideal time for this particular team? I mean, last year's team, we had, we had I don't know, 17 players, I think. and then But the year before, we only had 9 or 10 because of health issues, mainly. And, uh, and people taking a year off, you know, hmm. so the warm up for a play, a team of nine is very different than a warm up for a team of 17. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so it can't just be, this is what we do every year because teams are different every year. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to rehearse and reiterate and then, and then, and practice what it looks like for a timeout with the team of nine. And what does it look like? I mean, 17, you're talking about double the team size. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, coming back to what we were talking about before with flow states, I'm wondering what your experience has been like, both as a player and a coach. And this is kind of, you know, this is a really difficult question, I understand. And it's kind of an internal mystery, honestly, it seems like. But are there... Like when, so you had that flow state when you were golfing, you said, and you also, I'm sure, had varying degrees of flow and lack of flow, feeling kind of rigid as a player, just like every player has. How do you think about generating or pre preparing a mind to enter a state like that? It's kind of a, it seems like kind of a paradox to me in that sometimes if you try to make it happen, it's, that's when it's least likely to happen. Um, so how do you think about that problem in sports? And I know that, you know, the, 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 the guy who coined flow, I think he's a Hungarian psychologist who I, I could never dream of pronouncing his name. Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, I learned something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's how I pronounce it. And I learned about him long ago and okay. we, we studied in, in Zykowski at BU, talked about him a lot. Okay, and, great. Uh, so it's great that you're mentioning him. In fact, I was in touch with him last year. Oh, no way. He's a, awesome. Well, he's a graduate professor at, at um, the Claremont schools. Oh, cool. Awesome. So, so I actually was trying to set up a meeting with him, and then the season got started, and, and, then, uh, and then, we're in, then the pandemic started. So I haven't been able to do that. But anyway, so I cut you off my bad. No, no, that's, that's awesome that you know him. That's really cool. But he talks about how in difficult disciplines, things like sports and mathematics and 
poetry and music, this this experience of flow can occur. And it happens, it, he, he argues that it tends to happen when a very high skilled performer meets a very difficult task and there's great concentration. And I thought that was a cool way of framing it. But do you have any thoughts on this issue of, you know, generating flow and if, even if, if that's even possible or how you think about that? Yeah, it's a, uh, I think I said, I think I pronounced his first name wrong too. It's Mihali, Mihali, something, something like that. Forgive me. I think people call him Mike. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> That's better. <laughs> um, I'm staring at one of his other books called The Evolving Self right now. But, uh, yeah, as, a, as far as when, when, when you, when you, when you think about what flow means to him and how he established and developed that and the balance of challenge and skill, and, and how those cooperate with the idea of boredom and anxiety. It just makes a lot of sense when you, when you diagram it on the board. Mm. And, and it's something that I've done with our teams. I mean, we'll, you ask about, well, how do you teach flow? I think you first have to understand what it is. Mm. And so I've diagrammed it on the whiteboard and just like I would in a, if I was teaching a course. Mm. I think when you can picture it and understand, well, yeah, if, if, if there's a challenge in front of us and uh, we don't have the skills to meet that challenge, then it can create anxiety. I mean, mm -hmm. it just makes sense when you talk it out like that. And when we talk about performance goals and, and process goals and outcome and what we want our experience to be like, it's a it's a it's it's a good dialogue to have just talking about um, flow and and there there are a lot of ways to do it I mean there's there's flow as as a solo artist and then there's team team flow I, mean, I guess other people would talk about it being that of you know um, they're clicking or they've got great chemistry right now or there's great momentum here yeah and so i I believe in that sort of connectivity and that energy as well and but you're right I mean you can't if you i mean intense desire or even maybe moderate desire can create suffering and I mean if you go from eastern thought and mm -hmm. and into uh you know for instance buddhist thought and and what what monks might practice and talking about you know i know you're heavily into the meditative processes and meditative states and and this is what we're trying to achieve <laughs> that's paradoxical too when you are right. trying to achieve a st this state of meditation well you don't want to try too hard right or right. it's hard to get there because you're thinking about it too much and now you have other distracting thoughts but right. part of it is just letting it happen mm -hmm. so in times where i believe i've been in flow I certainly wasn't thinking about getting there. And maybe, maybe the thought crossed my mind walking to the gym. I wonder if today will be <laughs> one yeah. of those, one of those moments. But you can't necessarily control the effortlessness and the, the, uh, the ability to not think and just play and, and just respond while just experiencing total joy. But I think a lot of that comes from, the idea of deliberate practice as well. So mm -hmm. by practicing and deliberate practice, I'm referring to Erickson's model 
of, I don't know if you're familiar with all of that research, but um, he spent, you know, basically a lifetime studying um, talent and talent development and expertise. And so that's how you acquire the skills that are necessary to achieve flow. And so, so pra- by, go ahead, sorry. Yeah. So by, by practicing uh, and, and practicing intensely and, and doing things down to the detail where you're actually, you are conscious of what you're doing because you're really thinking hard about how do I get better? All of that adds up to the opportunity to achieve flow states because now you, you have the, the skills to, to match the challenge that's, that's in front of you. Uh, and I mean, on the flip side, if, if, if you have really expert, expert skills, but the task in front of you is not, um, not that challenging, then that's where it's kind of mundane and you become bored. That's where setting up a, a, a really efficient basketball practice comes into play because you have advanced players and you might have players who are not as good at certain things. So how do you keep everyone engaged all the time? And so I think about, when you ask about how do I utilize flow state or the flow state model, I think about that as well in, in practice design. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. The, the flip side is something that's less emphasized, I think, in these conversations is when you have a great player who isn't finding flow states because they aren't challenged enough. And you could think about if LeBron James played in a high school game tomorrow, I don't think you know he would dominate, but he wouldn't be in a flow state necessarily. It would be boring. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So how do you well, think that's, about Well, that's, I was going to say, just really, I was going to say that when, when I use Michael Jordan as an example, I mean, he's the guy I grew up watching and, and, um, and listening to interviews and watching all the NBA videos and all his, and everything he would talk about, but he would often talk about that too. I mean, one of the reasons that he retired, you know, the first time he talks about in his press conference was that he just he's achieved everything he could and didn't see any more challenges in front of him and <laughs> yeah. so he, he's not which, going to be in a flow state anymore which uh coming from him it actually feels coherent and true any other player who said that would be like what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> right well that's why no one else has really retired like he did right because right, right. he he was he had he had burned out his flow i guess Right, right. Until he goes play baseball. Now here's another chance to acquire skills and a challenge in front of him. And then now he can come back to basketball because now he has, he's, he's reinvented another challenge. Can I, can I come back after a year and a half and win three more NBA championships? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I never thought about it that way, but I think that's spot on. That's really great. Well, coach, I, we're coming up here on the cutoff. Um, I think, I've, you know, I could keep talking to you about this stuff for hours, but I think it, if you have time for a few rapid fire questions to finish. Oh yeah. Uh, let's try it. I haven't eaten yet. So let's see if my brain can respond. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. What, uh, what book should every athlete and or coach read? Oh man, I guess, I guess, uh, we were just talking about flow. I mean, may as well just pick up, pick up flow. I mean, the, the, the seminal work on flow. And then as a second one, there's, there's one that, um, he wrote with another author called flow in sports. So if, I guess if you want to get really specific, cool, uh, you could do that. Cool. 
Uh, I'll link to those and also link to his great TED talk too uh, in the show notes. What um, is there a non-sports related book and non-psychology related book, something obscure that influenced you as a coach deeply? Yeah. I mean, I read so much, so it's, 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 uh, I can't even think of one that, um, man, that's a good, that's a good question. I'm scanning my, I'm trying to I realize it's kind of broad. Do, do yeah. a, a rap, uh, talk about a rapid fire question. <laughs> it's not a rapid fire answer, but, uh, man, I don't know. Why does, why do, why does, why does to kill a mockingbird hit my mind for some, I don't know. That's what came into my mind, but we're just talking about a non-sports book. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I found so much benefit reading fiction. I think in some ways it's truer than nonfiction and my, my grandfather writes fiction. And so I've been, yeah, it's hard to describe the kind of wisdom that you can get out of good fiction, but it's, it's really, I think it's really important. Yeah, Absolutely. Can you think of something that you've changed your mind about in regards to basketball or psychology in the last, let's say, five or ten years? Something that you were convinced of that you flipped on? Well, I don't know if I I flipped on it, but just when, in terms of emotions mm. and just how much emotions can influence a person or influence an athlete without you really knowing it mm. as you as you really dive into the research and here especially with with uh what people are looking at that's happening in the brain nowadays with all the advanced technology that we have and and understanding how emotions can build unconsciously and then you might say something or do something and now you're acting on those emotions without knowing that they were there and not even just emotions, but just thoughts. I mean, we're, we're constantly learning and our brain is so active. Our brain is most active when we're not doing anything mm. because it's trying to figure out what to do next and where the threats are mm -hmm. versus when you're focused on a task, it's, it's kind of, uh, the, uh, the alertness is now on the task and not everything else. And, and so when you really start to, learn and understand how humans operate that that is really significant when it comes to figuring out yourself and also how you work with others as you're trying to figure out how others work. <laughs> yeah. So it's just this whole, there's just so much complexity there. Mm. Yeah. So I don't know if I flipped versus, you know, but, 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 back, but the flip is, as as a as a player growing up and what we've taught you know taught uh, from uh, coaches that we had and even my college coach was just was a motivator and just you know play hard and do this and uh and and I learned a lot from him but you don't realize all the other things that are happening that mm -hmm. uh, might be need needed uh attending to mhm mm definitely Okay, what's your all-time favorite band? That Dave Matthews band is is a uh, is the one I listen to the most, and just there's such a great jam band. So when, even when we're talking about music and flowing on flowing and, and playing off one another, they're just 
they're so good. I've seen them in concert a number of times. Nice. Great. Okay, last one. What failure or difficult time that you wouldn't want to repeat are you most happy to have gone through that changed you in a positive way? And I'm going to cite this for the, the Sam Harris podcast. I, I'm, I'm plagiarizing it. So, <laughs> Say, Ask the question again. Okay, what failure or difficult time most influenced you in a positive way? Something that you wouldn't want to go through again, perhaps, but that changed you for the better? Oh my gosh. Well, see, I, I, I'd, I'd say that any sort of failure, um, was good. I mean, when you take that optimistic route, mm -hmm. but you're asking what I wouldn't want to go through again. Uh, I mean, the thing is, there's been so many failures. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I can't think of just one. I mean, uh, again, not a rapid fire answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not great at the rapid fire because I, I, I think about things so much. No, no, no. It's, it's great. But uh, um, I don't know, Billy. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think about losing games you know but that just that just happens yeah i can i can but you know like failing a like getting a 36 on a chemistry test in high school <laughs> where your your parents are so upset like how does this happen well, let me help you like that's pretty gut-wrenching <laughs> yeah 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 i that that feeling you forget about like getting the paper handed back with the red ink on it with a with an F or whatever the score yeah, is. I, I, I didn't yeah. learn, I guess that, there, there you go. I, we'll use that one because I, I don't want to go through that one again. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and the whole, at that age, like your whole universe collapses when you see that grade. Yeah, I've, I've been there too. Um, well, great. Well, Coach, um, stolen an extra five minutes or so of your time. I really appreciate you doing this. It's been great to talk to you. And um, yeah, maybe we can, schedule a part two someday because I have a lot more to talk about with you. And I was, it was, I learned a lot. So thank you. And I'll be following you and, and Steve in the upcoming season, if, and when we ever get past this pandemic. So thank you. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll happen someday. Yeah. We'll talk about living in the moment. That's what we're doing right now. For sure. I appreciate, appreciate the conversation. I think it's really good to be on, on, on uh, platforms like this because it, it does make one, self-reflect and dive deep into some good some good questions and conversations so i appreciate it for sure well thanks coach take care okay you too okay. Bye. thank you for listening to the podcast just a reminder that my new book is available the book is called harder than i thought easier than i feared sports anxiety and the power of meditation and the book is the perfect resource for a struggling athlete an athlete who's lost their confidence or is no longer enjoying the sport they play or for any athlete who wants to make the most of their athletic experience while also setting themselves up for a good life after sports and I think the book will be of interest to coaches and parents and fans as well so you can find a link to the book in the show notes to this episode or you can visit billyhanson.net forward slash book to pick up a copy thank you again for listening and I'll see you here for the next episode
It's the sauce.